Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today is the co-host, Y Lou. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Hey, good, Why? It's been a good week for me. How about you? Yeah, it's cool. We had Australia Day in the middle of the week, so everyone got to take a day off and we went to the beach. So it's, What's um, it, is Australia Day? Is that like Independence Day for us or what is it? Yeah, I guess so. It's like the, yeah, I guess. Uh, when's uh, Independence Day for, for you guys? July 4th. 4th of July. 4th of July, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's just the birth of the country or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, cool. Just an excuse to have a holiday, <laughs> really. So. <laughs> So is the beach crowded, even with uh, COVID going on? Well, we've got tons of beach in Australia, so it's <laughs> never really that crowded, really. We just, you got you to drive a little bit. We drove about two hours, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just a really good day, really good weather and all that stuff, so. Nice. All right. Well, happy Australia Day. Thank you. <laughs> Let's bring on our guest. Let's welcome Adam Bermanek. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Hey, Sean. Hey, Way. Hey, good. Good. Hey, Adam. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. To get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, uh, who you are, kind of what you do, and then how you got into development and uh, things related to .NET? Yeah, totally. First, thanks for inviting me here on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And when it comes to my background, I'm like a software engineer for over a decade now, currently working with Amazon, doing mostly machine learning stuff like video recommendations, text-to-speech generation, and all that fancy stuff you can hear from Alexa. Generally, being in the business for many years and doing multiple different things. I was back-end, I was front-end, stack doing mobile development on both Android and iOS, and even old things like BlackBerry or Java Micro Edition, so like a dinosaurs kind of stuff. Also doing databases, desktop applications, basically anything. Projects spanning multiple different domains, starting with banking, fintech, to general finances, doing some e-commerce. If you ever flew with Air Canada or traveled with Heathrow Express, uh, you are probably using my code or at least things I was working on. And also a public speaker. I'm a public speaker for many years now, traveling around the world, attending multiple conferences, talking mostly about .NET, low-level stuff, but also distributed systems, also about JVM stack, also about funny things or interesting things from the computer science domain. With .NET, actually, I started my career with Java, but then I moved on to .NET like uh, 10 years ago and been working with it for 
probably six like full time and then doing some some projects related to 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 the general .NET development mostly obviously web applications because that was a bread and butter of the of the domain however was i was also working on things like desktop apps with winforms or wpf but also using the read only code as you can say like visual basic so yeah I touched a lot of those things learned quite a lot i was always interested in internals of the .NET platform. I even wrote a book about that, which is called .NET Internals Cookbook. You can find it on Amazon and learn quite uh, some interesting stuff about like internals, interops, how it's implemented under the hood and all that stuff. Yeah, that's it when it comes to to my experience. Wow, I I think some people might be surprised that uh, Amazon is doing development using .NET. Well, that may, might be surprising. I agree. Obviously, it's not very common. Most of projects are obviously in like Java or Javish stack. There is quite a lot in older technologies like in Perl. Obviously, my, obviously Amazon started with Perl. Similarly, Microsoft did. So this technology was always around. But yeah, there are some .NET projects and there is also quite interesting movement when it comes to like supporting .NET, .NET Core or .NET framework. .NET 6, supporting .NET also on like Docker's virtual machines and all that stuff. So yeah, Amazon does use, does use .NET. Before we actually move on, just like a clarification and statement here, obviously I'm here appearing as a natural person, not as someone working at Amazon. So whatever I tell you is my own opinion, obviously. So don't attract that and don't attribute that to Amazon. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's only the three of us. So, you know, it's not a problem. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So we saw an article that you wrote in InfoQ, and it dealt with overriding sealed methods in C Sharp. So let's let's start really, really simple. And for those new developers out there, tell us what a sealed method is. That's a very good question. Yeah, generally when we are talking about methods in .NET, we think about polymorphism and object-oriented programming, right? So if with polymorphism, what we can do is we can mark a method as a virtual and then we can overwrite it in subclasses, meaning that we, if we have like a base class and a derived class, and then we override the base method from the base class and the derived class, then when we do call this method on the instance of the derived class, we will get the method from the from the derived class being called. So that's the general idea behind behind the polymorphism here. Important remarks are it works in runtime. So it does not necessarily use the type we specify in the in the C sharp source code during compilation time. So if we get the instance of the derived type and assign it to the type of to the variable of the base type, then even even though it's in theory different type during compilation, when we call the method, we get the we get the derived class uh, method being called. Now we may want to stop that. We may want to mark the method as "Hey, this method should be never overridden." We want to stop this polymorphism. So if there is yet another derived class somewhere over there, it won't be able to override this virtual method at any point. So that's why that is what this assumed method is. It basically stops the like the polymorphism hierarchy down below from the from the method we mark as sealed. So that's the idea. All right. So you mark the base class method sealed, and then any classes that inherit from it, 
have to use that implementation, correct? That is correct. They cannot override it okay. anymore. Right. But there's sometimes where you want to override it. You want to, you know, tell it, ignore that. I'm going to do it anyways. Well, Isn't that bad? Well, C Sharp will not allow you to do so. And obviously, even in the article you mentioned, I'm not actually doing that. I'm not breaking any .NET or C-sharp principles behind the, behind the scenes. Uh, it's more of a clickbait article trying to attract <laughs> your attention. But the well, main point I'm glad you said is, it, not me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was me. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, the article shows that it is possible that we can get the method, which is even though marked as sealed, even though it does not need to be like explicitly marked as sealed because static methods are like sealed by default, right? By definition. And yet we would like to modify this method in some way. We There is some code probably provided from the library or from the like .NET uh, like base classes or whatever, which we can use, but we would like to modify it a bit, tune it to our needs, right? And if those methods are static, sealed, or just not virtual, then we cannot do this. However, sometimes we might want to do that. Obviously, that depends on the on the use cases, whether this is a good idea, and I believe we'll be exploring those use cases, whether it's a good idea to, to actually do it this way. However, I wanted to show that, yeah, technically it is possible to do those tricks, and that's why, and that's what that article is talking about. I think most people, when they wanted to override a, a, a sealed method, would just create a new method with a different name and just just call it through that way, but that's probably not what people want to do all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, what you explained is a perfect solution, but we need to control the whole code base, right? Because if you create a new method in the derived class with the same name and the same parameters, then even though in theory and technically like it matches the signature, it's a different method. So if some other part of the code base which you maybe not control, because it's like coming from the libraries or third party or whatever else is not aware that this method exists, then your implementation will not be called that the base method, the base implementation will be used instead. And that's what we would like to to sometimes change. Why we might want to change it? Why we why do we want to modify like one of the basic principle of object oriented and, and sealed in, in C Shop? Obviously, it's when we want to do things which people or authors of some other part of the the code base did not expect to happen. One of the examples I was using it for is there is a concept of having multiple virtual desktops in your operating system, right? Windows 10 even introduced this thing, which is called, I believe, the task button. So you can have multiple like desktops, so you can shuffle your windows here and there. The thing is, a machinery like this was included with Windows for 30 years now. It started sometime around Windows 3, 3.1, 3.11, whatever that was called. So generally, it's a very old bit of the Windows operating system. And now comes the question. Let's say that I'd like to start an application from my C-sharp code. So I do have like process run or process start, whatever. And I'd like this app to be started on some different desktop. How do I do that? Well, 
If I wanted to do that like the by the book, I obviously need to stick to the API exposed by the .NET platform. However, there is no parameter for, for doing that, no parameter which allows you to specify which desktop you would like to use for the application to be started. And now comes the thing, how do I modify that? Well, one approach would be to fork the .NET probably would work, but it's like a very big hammer, which you probably don't want to use in the first place. And if you explore a couple other approaches, a couple other options, you start considering, hey, can I modify just like this one tiny little piece of code, which is dubbed somewhere dubbed down in the, in the base library provided by the .NET platform. And this is where we actually enter the world of not necessarily overriding sealed method, but actually doing something more powerful, modifying an existing method of any type and modifying the code which is in it, like in runtime. So that's the basic idea. And that's actually the main point of the article that, hey, we are not only modifying methods which are marked sealed, but we can modify any methods, constructors, virtual, non-virtual methods, static methods, instance methods. We can just step in, take the code which is there, compiled from C-sharp code to intermediate language or whatever else, and we can just modify it to do what we want. So, so it sounds like the use case is more for like consuming an API or a, a class library that you don't control, I guess, mainly because... I guess if you did control it, you, you just wouldn't put it sealed in the in the first place. That's a very reasonable assumption. Yes, if you can control the, this piece of code, then probably you do not want to hack things on a low level, right? You just step in and modify the mm. code. But if you cannot control it, and there might be multiple reasons why we cannot control the code. First reason is it's provided as base libraries, right? So you do have .NET Framework, .NET Core, whatever. Second reason might be you don't even know where this code is. It may be loaded dynamically from the from the internet or as a third-party plugin, whatever. Another reason is this code may actually be coming from uh, some other platform. For instance, in .NET, there is this compiler called IKVM, which lets you run basically any Java code directly on your .NET application in your in your CLR. So if you now take the code which is like from Java maybe a little harder for you to change it. So those are the use cases when you do not control the code, as you mentioned, but still you would like to tweak it a little. So I guess you were saying that before, that like forking it, that code, having your own copy of it would be kind of a big hammer. But do you also think this might also be a bit of a pretty big hammer as well? Because I'm thinking that might be the risk of this is that if they ever update that original source in the future that might, I'm I'm guessing what you're doing is probably also not supported as, as well, right? So it might like there's a risk that if they ever update it, there might be unintended consequences for your your application as well. That is very right, yes. But there are multiple issues with that if you fork something. First, you need to keep it up to date, right? They change something, you probably would like to merge with them at some point. There might be a vulnerability, security issue, whatever else. The code might just become very, very old and you'd like to stick to like latest dependencies, right? So this is one thing which gets harder when you fork the repository or when you just fork the code. The second thing is 
if they do change something, as you mentioned, it does affect what you are doing. Like Just like with every single API, when they introduce some breaking changes, you may get problems, your application may not compile, and that's actually the best case because compiler stops you from using the code, which will not work. But here in this case, it, may, it will go unnoticed because since we are doing this on a very low level, like behind the scenes of the C-sharp compiler nor any other compiler, uh, can spot that, we risk things that, yeah, they change something and it breaks us significantly. So yeah, those are the issues. On the other hand, if you fork the if you fork the source code and you can modify it, then you can introduce whatever changes you wish. But now the kind of question comes, is it about if that's just a single library, then probably the cost of forking is is it is not that high. But if we are talking about let's fork .NET six that may be very expensive right and merging may be mm. quite a pain so you mentioned that it's it's dealing with the intermediate language so to to do this do you actually get in there and you edit the the dll before the compiler or after the compiler yeah and so do you actually have to know that or are you are you writing c sharp to do that for you that's a very good question. In the article, I explained two methods you can do this. First one uses metadata mostly used by the reflection mechanism in .NET. So the way it works, every single method in .NET platform, it's not something specific to C-sharp, it's generally how .NET works, is that with every method, we have a thing called method handle, which the platform uses behind the scenes to get something about the about the method. Like imagine you need to compile, just in time compile the method from the intermediate language to the machine code, right? So the platform needs to know where the intermediate language is stored, whether there is already a machine code uh, prepared for you or not, whether it was compiled ahead of time, like with engine already to run, how many instances of the machine code you have, because now with starting .NET Core, 2.1, I think, we do have the mechanism called tiered compilation. So a single method, like single C-sharp method, may get compiled with the just-in-time compiler many times during the lifetime of your application. So that the platform needs to track, keep track of all those changes and keep some metadata, obviously, how it's being used, how it works, etc. And those things are stored in the method descriptor, which we can access via the method handle. Right. In C-sharp, we can get an access to uh, some part of those metadata, which is when we do, when we use the reflection, whenever we do call type of yada yada get method, we get some metadata describing the method, what its name, parameters, generic type parameter, what it returns, etc., etc. All those things are stored in method descriptor. Now, there is obviously this part which we can access directly from c Live with the safe and regular API, but also there is this part which is accessible to the CLR only. However, since it's stored in the memory, and we do have pointers and we do have API for accessing memory directly under some address, we can get our hands on that part of the metadata. Now, the question is, what can we find over there? And one thing I already mentioned is the method must have its mashing code, right? So there is a pointer which points, hey, method foo 
actually the, the machine code for the method is being stored at the address X. And there is this pointer. If we now get the access to this pointer and modify it, we can uh, trick the .NET to think that, hey, this method is actually stored at the address Y. So whenever we call the method foo, we will just call some different machine code. So this is how we can reroute effectively the method. Now you asked whether we are doing this on the intermediate language or where do we do that? The answer is we are doing it way below the, the intermediate language. Here we are doing this on the .NET metadata, which is some sort of like C++ part of the, of the .NET runtime. So this is what we do. And the first approach, and there are obviously a couple of advantages of doing that. Now, to give you some more idea, how can we use that to actually override the method? We do have, let's say, we have a method foo, which accepts some parameters written or something, right? Now we would like to basically override the method, so we need to have some method bar which accepts exactly the same parameters and returns the same type, okay? What do we do now is we step in, get the pointer to the machine code of methods, both foo and bar, and then we modify the metadata of method foo to point it to the machine code of the other method, of the bar. So now when you call foo, it will the .NET will do the regular thing to call a method, so it will just get the pointer and start executing the machine code, which is being pointed by this pointer. However, after we modify this pointer, to start executing the method bar. .NET will not check it out whether it is executing actually like the original method foo, because the, the check happens much earlier. All the safety checks, type checks, and all that stuff are being performed when the type is being loaded. So when we are, let's say, more or less load start the application. But after that, in runtime, we can take the pointer, modify it, and .NET will not re-verify those things anymore. So this is why we can effectively use this technique to, to reroute the method to some other and effectively override sealed methods or any other methods we can imagine. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Is there a common use case for when you would want to do something like this? As I mentioned, it's when you want to override something from third party. There is no like there is no use case which I would call common. This is probably depending on all the low level things you are dealing with. One of them I already mentioned, like running thing on some other desktop for which I basically step in and modify the constructor of some structure which is stored over the deep in the .NET internal. So how does it work when you call process start? 
the API behind the uh, the process start method, what it does is it creates an instance of a structure called startup info. And this structure holds a couple of parameters which needs to be passed to the to the Win API, right? Via P invoke interrupt call. So this includes the binary path, parameters all the stuff and also the pointer to the desktop which is being used. So process start creates this instance and then calls the win API with this instance. So there is like no place where you can actually step in, get this instance and modify it a bit. Okay, so what we can do now is we can get the constructor of this instance and override it. So we can get our code executed instead of the regular constructor of that structure as startup info. That's one use case. Other use cases I've been using in production is, let's mention the the IKVM I already mentioned. So if you create a new thread in C-sharp and you start executing a code on it, and then the code throws the exception, which is not being handled. So basically you end up with some unhandled exception. If it gets propagated to the very top of the, to the very beginning of your call stack and it gets unhandled, it will just kill your application. It will crash it. So you cannot stop that. If you just create a new thread and you get unhandled exception, you die. It's different in other technologies. For instance, in Java, they do not have such problems. When they have unhandled exceptions on a thread, that's sort of perfectly fine. I mean, the thread dies, but whole application, whole process works continuously, okay? So if you now take some Java code and you run it on .NET via IKVM, then obviously you do not handle that exception which may be thrown on a thread. But since now this thread is being executed as a .NET thread, it will kill your application. So that's another use case. Okay, we do have some code which throws the exception, does not handle it, and kills us, like kills the whole process. Imagine this code coming from a third-party plugin. You are just loading dynamically to your application executing, okay? What can we do about that? Well, abdomains won't help you, right? Because your whole abdomain will die. So you would need to trick the abdomains, do inter-abdomain communication, which we all know is very heavy and very cumbersome. So, But anyway, the abdomain will die. So you would need to strictly isolate just this little part of code. Maybe you would want to run it in some external process instead, which will also incur some, some cost on you and increase the burden of handling that. But there is another idea. Why don't we get the constructor of the thread and get the method it's trying to execute. So this lambda you typically put into a new thread, do this, yeah? And then wrap this lambda with try catch. Sounds simple. How do we do that? Again, we get the constructor of a thread, we override it by tricking the, but using this technique, and we wrap the original code with try catch and starts executing it. So that's the again the idea. And I was using this idea in, in production and it worked seamlessly. So yet another example when you obviously those are very rare use cases, I must say. You probably won't see those things often in your business as usual and line of business applications. However, once you have this, then you scratch your head because either you need to do quite a lot of like bookkeeping to, to execute this code correctly, or maybe just, you know, bend the rules a bit and, and override those. I think the other thing is you'd probably need a pretty good understanding of how that third party 
library actually works before attempting something like this, I think. Not to mention that you need to have a pretty good understanding of the whole computer. And here we actually come to the second technique we can use. The first technique, which I explained, is based on the idea that we get the metadata of the method foo and modify it so it points to the method bar. This generally works for many use cases. There are some methods which we won't be able to trick with this. Those methods may be like, for instance, pre-compiled in the ahead of time mode. They may have the pointer somewhere else because there are multiple different instances of the metadata structure. So generally it gets tricky and expensive to keep that uh, and maintained. But we can do something else. If we can get the machine code of the original method, foo, the foo method, we can modify this machine code like directly in place. Because this, the machine code is basically like, you may think of it as of an assembly language, like on your x86 platform, whether 32 or 64 bit, doesn't matter. Technically, it's a little different because machine code is just like a one level below that, because assembly language is like a, a higher level language in the sense that one instruction may be compiled to multiple different things. If you move value from one register to the other and from memory to the register, then those are technically two different instructions on the CPU level, even though in assembly you'd still use move mnemonic. But okay, we can get the machine code and nothing stops us from modifying it in place. And what we can do is we can write a bit of machine code which basically jumps on the CPU level from the method foo to the address of the method bar. So we start executing the method foo as usual, but the very first line of like CPU instruction, which we want to execute is jump somewhere else and effectively call our method. How can that be useful? Obviously, this requires quite a deep understanding of what's going on in your machine. You need to understand not only that, hey, there is .NET, but also there is CPU, the memory protection bits. Uh, you cannot just step in and modify whatever me page memory you have. You need to do it a little more carefully. You need to be able to generate the machine code. You need to understand this machine code. You need to know how it deals with multi-tiered compilation, sometimes with garbage collection and memory alignment, quite a lot of stuff. But once you do have it, you can start doing also some very hacky low-level things. And one example I had is yet another. It comes from exceptions world. When you do have the Stack Overflow exception in .NET, it kills your app again. If you get the Stack Overflow, you cannot catch it no way to do that. You sometimes even can't be notified that there's some wrong, something wrong happened. You you just can't handle that. You cannot deal with it at all. And the documentation for, for this Stack Overflow exception tells you, hey, you shouldn't catch it because your application is wrongly designed, is ill-designed if you do that, okay? However, they do not mention the same with other exceptions like division by zero, right? You can just introduce if, hey, if is that zero what I'm trying to use as a divider or not? Uh, but they tell you this in the documentation. Do that, check your stack size before calling a method which may call the, which may throw the stack overflow exception. But anyway, imagine now this scenario. You are running your unit test session with an unit x unit 
unit, whatever you have. And now one of the tests, let's say you have billion of tests, like a lot. And then the very first test throws a stack overflow exception for some reason. What's going to happen? Well, we mentioned that stack overflow exception kills your application. So it will kill your test runner. So effectively, all the other tests will not be executed at all. It's not that they will be marked as like red, failed, or whatever. They just won't get executed because the the test runner just died. How can we deal with that? Well, obviously, we could start running each unit test in different process, okay? That would be probably very heavy and very time-consuming, and we want our unit tests to finish fast, right? We could isolate them with abdomains. This won't help either, because abdomains will, like the whole process will die, not just a single abdomain. So what can we do? Well, we can start using this technique, which we described, like putting a bit of mashing code in a method, to do some very hacky stuff. because. We are focusing, or the article focuses on, how can we use that to override a sealed method? Meaning that, and I explained, we jump from the foo method to the bar method, okay? But nothing stops us from putting some different machine code. You want to implement a function which just adds up to numbers? That's cool. Just put your machine code over there and it's going to work. But we can use this as well for doing some other tricks like we can handle the Stack Overflow exception this way. How do we do that? And this is also like explained on my blog and in other articles I've written. There are mechanisms in the operating system, I'm talking Windows here, but similar mechanisms are in Linux, which allow you to get a handler on any exception. I'm not talking about .NET exceptions here, I'm talking about like hardware faults, page faults, generally exceptions, hardware exceptions coming from your CPU. And if you get a handler for that, what you can do is by crafting some well-designed machine code, you can catch the Stack Overflow exception or actually realize the Stack Overflow exception is there and you can stop your process from dying. Obviously, you do that not because you want to safely carry on because, well, it's very hard to talk about safely carrying on in this context when you have Stack Overflow exception, but you can at least stop your process from dying. So you can roll back like the call stack, probably save some data like in our unit test scenario, which would be this test failed, but I have those billion tests to execute and then just restart the process with other tests. So this way, if one of the tests is faulty and kills like the whole app because of Stack Overflow exception, you gently survive this and restart the process like in the middle so you can carry on. Effectively, all your tests would be executed and you would see that, hey, this one failed with Stack Overflow exception. So there is probably not much we can tell you about that, like co-stack, memory, content or whatever. But generally, at least all the other tests were executed. So this is yet another example of how I was using this technique, basically to have a, to create a process which was a little more reliable, was not dying like out of nowhere, and you have no idea what happened. Obviously, 
as we started this whole this whole uh, part of the discussion, it requires quite a deep understanding of the platform, CPU, operating system, architecture, memory, all that stuff around. But once you understand that, well, the 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 important part is it's all just a bunch of bytes. So if you know how to control those bytes, you're good to go. Wow, I mean, either either way that you go about this really doesn't sound like it's something that uh, a new developer should try to take on. And they should just stick to stick to the way that the original library implemented it and uh, go from there. Or <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Probably it's not your typical knowledge you use on Monday morning, but yeah, <laughs> it's worth having those you know tools in your toolbox. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, even if somebody's new, they know now that it's possible. So once they're ready to try to do something like this, they can look into it and go, yeah, I know I can do it. I know there's a way. What did Adam tell me? That's what they have to think about. (laughs) Yeah, and we can actually take this journey even further from here. Once we understand that, hey, we modified some machine code, we can basically generate machine code in like array of bytes in C-sharp and get it executed. We can really start wondering uh, what is possible else. And the answer is quite a lot. You can, for instance, allocate your reference objects like strings, instances of classes or whatever else on the stack. And this is something you can do. It will work, may not be super safe, depending how well you understand the concept of stack and you do not lead your objects, but generally it's possible. You can take control of the whole memory allocation. For instance, you can control where your objects are being stored or where those things are passed between methods. You can modify the type of the object itself, meaning that let's say you have instance of class foo, you can in the memory in runtime modify it so it now becomes an instance of type bar. So you can, by doing that, you can start serializing types which were not marked with the attribute serializable. That's what you can do. You can disable garbage collector at all. You can hide objects from GC. This, like, the sky is the limit once you understand that, hey, it's just a bunch of bytes which I can play with and modify. Obviously, all those things. The question is, again, why would we ever do that? And when I was explaining those things like years back before .NET Core 2, like there was answer which wasn't very very widely accepted like obviously you do that just for the performance but now starting with dotnet core we can actually see that there is some need for doing that deep down in the libraries like all the types span and memory ref structures all those things which were added to the to the c-sharp language quite recently they are all about doing exactly these things like playing with pointers but in a safe way so you do not get unexpected exceptions you do not crash the engine you get some compiler help support which stops you from you know shooting off your feet 
But like down to the essence, it's exactly the same. We just want to have a clever pointer which allows us to do the stuff. And ideally, we would like to have the support from the compiler too, so it's not dangerous. And that's why span and memory and other types were introduced to actually do that. And we can see that performance improvements are pretty remarkable, especially with latest.NET. We can see like multiple times performance improvement as compared to .NET framework or even earlier. Uh, .NET Core versions. However, this time we do not need to use those raw pointers and toy with all the stuff which is down below. We can just use the span memory and other things 